Coming up in this podcast, mining jobs outlook, CEO pay, workplace deaths, population growth, apartment projects, our special report on tourism and our latest instalment of Great for the State. Welcome to Mark My Words, the weekly podcast from Business News with Mark Powell and Mark Beyer discussing the important business news and data stories from Western Australia. Welcome to our weekly podcast and welcome Mark Beyer. Firstly, Mark, uh, Business News research into the need for mining jobs shows there's a little less demand than some suggest. Yep, uh, look, we had a well-read report during the week um, about this whole issue about how well um, the supply of skilled labour will deal with the uptick in mining projects. The Australian Mines and Metals Association industry group put out a report saying that the state will need nearly 11,000 extra jobs by 2024 when the current wave of projects are in full production. I had a look at this and we assessed it against our own database because we've got a a very detailed database on our website Mm. um, under the BNIQ tab for all the projects underway. Our estimate is that they've... um, exaggerated by a factor of about 50% the number of extra jobs in net terms that will actually be needed in WA, mm. which is pretty fundamental when people try to plan ahead and you know, workforce planning and, and skills training, etc. And presumably a policy environment as well, which is seeking much so. to influence. Yeah. yeah. Right. Look, the, the really fundamental point here is that the iron ore sector, which dominates... Um, investment in mining projects at the moment, nearly all of the big projects, uh, BHP, Rio, Fortescue, are replacement mines. Right. So they're not going to add to production and they're not going to add to the workforce. It's a case people across. Yeah, so it's a case where existing mining operations um, will will reach their maturity. Um, The mining pit is exhausted and they're opening up these new mining sites to have replacement tonnage. Mm. And logically, the workers on the existing mines will shift over. So in net terms, there will not be growth. So the big um, mines being developed by the big three, it's about four and a half thousand jobs just on them. And that's putting aside the the magnetite project that Fortescue is developing. So that's that's new volume, that's that's a different case. Um, but just the traditional mining operations. So, I mean, it's a pretty um, you know, fundamental sort of issue to grapple with when you're planning ahead for what's going to happen in the Pilbara. Um, and was, I presume there's a level of automation there as well that would impact on that. Well, that came through in another one. Uh, BHP has stated publicly that they'll have about 600 operational jobs at their south flank mine. Now, this is being hailed as you know, the mine of the future. It'll have all the bells and whistles all the automation, all the new technology. Now, the study that the AMMA put out, mm-hmm. they factored in 2,000 operational jobs at that mine, and that was based on what they said was average productivity. So they looked at the tonnage coming out of the mine and said, well, based on what the industry's always done, they'll need about 2,000 jobs. Well, BHP said they'll only have 600 jobs. Now. Yeah, it seems a bit strange to me to do a study and you say, well, look, our numbers are better than what BHP themselves are saying, mm. but it does also indicate um, how much the mining industry is changing and yeah. the impact that automation is having. 
Um, a third area where we took issue with this report, um, they had two big lithium projects um, up at Wadjana, up in the Pilbara, and at Kemerton, down near Bunbury. Now, at Wadjana, uh, that's the project that Mineral Resources and Albemarle, um, there's a mine up there. Um, they had plans to spend um, more than a billion dollars on a, a lithium refinery. That's been cancelled. Um, so the 500 jobs that were factored in for that project, that's no longer valid. Similarly, Albemarle is building a refinery down at Kemerton. They've scaled down the size of that compared to what they were previously doing. Yeah. Um, so once again, the numbers that they factored in for that project, I think, will be a lot less um, in reality. Mm. So, you know, it was really surprising when we sat down and went through the numbers and then compared it to our own database and said, look, there are some real issues here. Um, you know, we, we fundamentally disagreed with the analysis that was put out by the AMMA, um, and a lot of our readers have clicked on the article so they can get make up their own mind and see what's really going on here. So the number we're talking about, that, that, w that the estimate that you're coming to is more for mining jobs uh, required, new mining jobs required, we're talking about five and a half, six thousand, are we? As opposed to, you know, eleven odd thousand. Yeah, okay. Right. Yeah. Okay. And obviously, uh, there's a multiplier effect off those. So if you halve the number of uh, jobs, direct jobs, you're going to halve the multiplier effect as well. Yeah. Okay, pretty fascinating. Um, now, Mark, uh, it's always an interesting time of year to examine CEO salaries. You know, you've had all the annual reports come out. There's a bit of window of opportunity for various uh, reports, uh, or sorry, window of opportunity for CEOs also to buy and sell shares in their own companies. So, uh, you know, what, you've, you've delved into all this. What have we found? Once again, um, this is something where we regularly track all the um, trading in shares by company directors. Um, there's a table that runs in our magazine every fortnight um, that I know a lot of people like to uh, have a close look at that. Yep. Um, and then all the data is also on our website. So off the back of that, um, we've been sort of adding up the, the value of share trades. Um, and there's some quite uh, big numbers there. Um, and I guess the trades sort of fall into a couple of different categories. Uh, one is where directors have taken the opportunity to, uh, to cash in some of their shareholding um, and, and reinvest the money elsewhere. Uh, so, um, you know, Galena Mining, Timothy Morrison's one of the directors there, you know, not really a household name, but he's sold uh, 16 million shares worth $5 million. Nice um, yeah. reward there. Um, Jonathan Downs and Adrian Bias are also directors at Galena. Um, they've raised about one and a half million from share sales. Um, Rodney Leonard, he's been a long-serving director at Lycopodium, the engineering company. Um, he's raised a tidy five million dollars, 5.3 million from share sales. Um, John Wellborn at Resolute is also cashed in about three million. So just interesting to be able to see um, what directors are choosing to do. Now, in most of these cases, they still retain very large shareholdings in their companies. Yeah. And, yeah, rebalancing portfolios, tax issues, other reasons they might be selling. Yeah, got to build a swimming pool or a house. That's good to see. Um, the other side of it that, in a way, is even more interesting is tied into sort of equity incentives and, in particular, performance shares, um, which are a popular tool to incentivise chief executives these days. And the, the important thing here is that 
when performance shares and other equity incentives are granted, there's an estimate at that point in time about what they might be worth, Mm -hmm. and that's what goes into the remuneration report that gets published each year uh, by listed companies. But then two, three, four years down the track, when these incentives are vested in the chief executive, the valuation is often very, very different. Yep. You know, sometimes they're worth nothing. Other times, because the share price has gone up, these chief executives are sitting on a big windfall. So uh, Peter Cook at Westgold Resources, he got about $4.5 million worth of ordinary shares after his performance shares vested. Uh, David Singleton at Austell, about $5 million worth of ordinary shares. Um, Elizabeth Gaines at Fortescue, similar story. So, once again, this is the stuff that we track on a regular basis. Yeah. And it's only by looking at the vesting of equity incentives that you find out what the package is really worth in reality. Yeah. Rather than what they thought it was probably going to be worth when they were granted. Because it was a place. forecast, right? And, yeah. you know, I mean, clearly, yeah, interesting, isn't it? I guess as a uh, if you're on the audit, not the audit committee, the remuneration committee of a of a major company, you're, you're trying to get the balance right, okay? You're trying to incentivise the CEO to do a good job and you're trying to make sure that shareholders don't feel like we've given too much away. Mm. So it's pretty fascinating. I mean, the issue also got a lot of publicity during the week because a group called the Australian Council of Superannuation Investors, they do an annual survey of chief executive remuneration And they do it on the basis of realised pay. So it's all about, they look at these equity incentives, they look at when they vest, what they're worth. This is the study where Alan Joyce at Qantas was ranked as number one in the country. Um, They said he got, he took home $24 million. Now, by comparison, if you look at the Qantas annual report, that said he was paid $10 million. Yeah, right. Still a tidy number. But yep. a very big difference very in, in quantum yeah. there. Um, the key thing was um, he was awarded a whole bunch of equity incentives about four, what, five years ago when the share price was $1.26. Um, the share price is now about $5.60. So it's that growth in the share price yep. meant those incentives you know, escalated in value enormously compared to what they originally expected. Um, the other name that bobbed up on that study that caught our eye, um, Raleigh Finlayson, at Saracen Minerals. Yeah. Um, you know, great, well, 40 under 40 winner. Definitely. Um, good WA story, gold mining business. Um, he was actually ranked as the eighth highest paid chief executive in the country. Um, his realised pay was just over $11 million. Go to the annual report, and that said he was paid a total of $1.9 million, um, and about half of that was in share options. Yeah. But same story. You know, Saracen's been a, a great success, the share price has gone up. So all those performance shares that Rally held, which have now vested, um, has delivered a very healthy return to him, mm, uh, which mm. is something we've previously reported yeah. um, in our director trades. So where, where, where do we sit here? I mean, I can see both sides of this story. Obviously, when you provide the arrangement, you're you're trying to work out what the cost is then to you, right? Okay, so I'm going to hand over these shares to you in four years' time if you perform. But right now, those shares are worth this. So that's effectively, I'm prepared to ring-fence that group, which otherwise 
we would sell to somebody else or, you know, whatever. Then again, four years later, the true cost is, you know, if it's four or ten times or whatever, it is the true cost because you could go and sell those shares in the market for that much, right? So that is the true cost. It's just the question around, is that fair or not? I mean, you've given it to the CEO, given them the incentive, and they've gone off and performed. What's wrong with that? There was a famous case a number of years ago, um, I think probably a decade or so ago, where West Farmers revised their long-term incentive scheme because they found that if it had been allowed to run, the amount of reward that would have been delivered through that was far in excess of what the board ever expected when they devised that scheme in the first place. And, you know, I sometimes wonder about some of these examples. You know, the board will sit back and say, wow, we wanted to, you know, the chief executive's done a good job, the share price has gone up, you know, they should be well rewarded, but gee, we didn't think it was going to be that much. Mm, So, you know, I wonder whether sometimes boards need to have that hard-nosed discussion. Yeah. I guess guess they could put a cap on it. They could say, well, it's up to this point. Mm. Um, but you know, they're not underwriting it either, are they? If if the uh, if if the company doesn't perform and they're worth nothing, they're not promising to pay a minimum anyway, are they? Well, the, the chief executives still get their base pay. Yeah, um, that's and there's true. usually an annual incentive scheme in there as well. That's true. So you know, they're not crying poor. No, no, no. Just just not getting quite as much as. Um, Potentially, they could. Well, maybe that's what companies need to do and go. What, where do we really, where do we really think it'd be too much? <laughs> yes. Not an easy one to answer. No, no. Uh, especially and, and as a last word, especially when you're looking four or five years in advance, you've got no idea really where things are going to go. And in the end, everyone should be bloody happy if the shares have gone up by four times or five times, right? I mean, you know, really. <laughs> um, now, Mark, uh, a death place. Uh, in the, a death in a workplace uh, is a very serious event. And we've had one of those this week, but it kind of, you know, opens the opportunity to talk about a, the, the deeper issue there. Yeah, look, the latest example, um, Independence Group announced that um, a truck driver at their Nova nickel mine passed away um, after an accident in the workplace. Um, it's another, and look, you know, people always click on these stories. Um, they're always well read. And a lot of the ones that get reported are in the mining industry, often because they're listed companies and they choose or feel obliged to report this publicly. And hence there's a perception, I think, that that mining is a really dangerous industry. Um, I think it's important to sort of step back from that and say, look, what are some of the long-term trends? Um, Now, on average, um, over about the last 15 years, is about 19 workplace deaths per year in Western Australia. Mm. Now, never a good number, um, but then you look at agriculture consistently is the, the worst industry for workplace deaths. Yeah. And we never hear about that. You know, it's, it's a farmer out there on his tractor or whatever, has quad, an accident. Quad bike. Quad bike, yes. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, we don't hear about that. Um, construction is another industry. Um, mining is about number three, so, you know, significant. Um, the occupation most at risk is truck drivers. Mm. Now, this independence group one is an example of that. It was a truck driver in a mine site. Yeah, right. 
Um, so it's, it's, you know, you've got to look a bit deeper at it. There's also been some analysis done by WorkSafe WA about, well, what's the long-term trend? And, you know, they look at averages over several years, and they've been doing this for about 15 years, and they've reported a consistent downward trend um, over the last 20-odd years in workplace deaths. You know, they look at number of deaths per million workers. Right. So that's very encouraging, but also puts a bit of perspective. The state government... Um, under influence, I believe, from the union movement, has announced plans for industrial manslaughter legislation. Um, and this is one of those things that I think a lot of the public sort of latch onto, because you know, no one ever enjoys hearing about a workplace death. The reality is, um, you know, industry in Western Australia has been getting better um, yep. with with some um, you know supervision from government. Um, I'm not convinced that industrial manslaughter legislation would make a big difference there. Um, I don't believe, you know, maybe there's going to be outliers, but, you know, chief executives, nobody wants to see a, a fatality, let alone no, any well, serious I mean, accident in their You and I have been on many mine sites, and just the process of getting on the site is, you know, safety intensive. They go to extraordinary lengths. Yeah. yeah. To the point where there's almost a pushback and people say, wow, this is crazy. But that's the lengths to which the industry goes. Yeah. I'm wondering, are those industrial manslaughter um, laws really aimed at those small businesses where people are getting people to do things without thinking about it and, and you know, but I, but I worry that in the end someone's going to end up going to jail because, you know, the, the big companies are already organised. It's the small companies that are, it might never change. Well, maybe maybe you do need people to go to jail to to make change, do you think? Well, the other thing that I've been looking at in our reporting of this over quite a long time is that in some cases where... So there was a famous example in East Perth where there were some tilt-up tilt panels yeah, on the back of a truck. One I keep thinking of. There was a couple of workers there having a smoko. Um, the, the panels, some panels were taken off, the other ones tilted over and crushed these two guys and they died. Now, most of us looked at that and thought that was an extreme example of poor management of a mm. workplace. Um, now, the government tried to prosecute. There was a couple of organisations got fined off the back of that. The trucking contractor pleaded guilty and paid a fine. Yeah. Um, there was another person in charge of the site that they tried to prosecute in the courts and were not able to get a conviction. Mm. So to me, that raised many questions. So it's not so much the level of the penalty but even whether they can get a prosecution yeah, right. in that workplace setting. Because no one's trying to go out and kill somebody. And it was ambiguous about, well, who exactly was responsible because yeah. there were multiple parties involved and the court found it was hard to pin down one person in particular. Yeah, interesting. Mm. Oh, well, interesting thing. And uh, I guess, you know, significant for a certain type and number of businesses out there. Uh, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say cautiously... Not those of us involved in the media, but uh, but you never know. And, and I guess if you've got printing works and things like that, there are there are places that are dangerous. Um, now, Mark, uh, population stats show growth for WA remains slow. Yeah, and look, I think population growth has become one of the most important economic indicators for Western Australia at the moment. Um, the Bureau of Stats puts out quarterly numbers, um, growth in the March quarter was at 1%, uh, 
um, on an annualized basis. Um, now that's um, slowly picking up, um, but we're still well below the national growth rate. You know, annually, um, Australia grows at about 1.6% a year, mm. and that's sort of around what you know the historic norm for Western Australia. So we're we're growing below average and have been doing for several years, and this flows through. You know, when you look at um, reduced activity in housing construction, when you look at sort of the softness in retail sales, it's the lack of population growth that's a significant factor here. Uh, the big issue for WA is that in net terms, people are still leaving and going interstate. Yeah. Um, it was about 8,000 last year. Um, now, it was even more in previous years. Um, so, in a sense, it's not as bad as it had been. Um, but that's sort of a, a real issue for Western Australia. Uh, people are going to the bright lights of Melbourne in particular. Mm -hmm. um, that's the fast-growing state. Um, Queensland is also attracting a lot of people. Though I think that's probably more out of New South Wales up to Queensland, um, which then, I guess, ties into this whole conversation we've been having in WA about, you know, is how can we make Perth a more attractive place? How can we have more going on here yeah. so that young people want to stay? Yeah. Um, so that we don't have this drain of people leaving the state year in, year out. Well, I guess there's some economic conditions that hasn't been as attractive, and I guess that's looking a little better, uh, you know. And I guess the other side of that, Mark, is Perth's got a lot more attractions today than when you and I were growing up here. And look, there's a little bit of me that goes, it's good for people to go out and learn and discover, and there's nothing wrong with that. And we too tend to get them back. But you've got to be cautious that you don't lose your most talented who then who then just don't have the reason to come back that's the they're the people you kind of want to keep here by giving them all the opportunities and giving them lifestyle that they just can't get anywhere else um now mark uh, the the last news part that we're going to cover off is apartment developments dan wilkie's done some work here some some places in perth are trickier than others to get an apartment development done Anyone that's been driving down the Quinana Freeway uh, past the Canning Bridge area will be seeing lots of cranes on the horizon. And that's become the real hotspot, uh, that sort of Canning Bridge precinct. And it's sort of, Dan's looked at there, you know, there are several projects that are either completed or currently underway. And there's about four others that he's looked at in detail here um, that are not yet coming out of the ground. Um, in fact, not yet finally approved, but people are working on them. The, the, the theme that's explored by Dan here is what's a good regulatory framework? Now, the city of Melville um, developed a, a planning scheme for that precinct. You know, they were very conscious about saying, well, look, we want to get more density in that area, more mm. apartments. It's close to the freeway. It's close to the train line. Um, you know, this makes sense. In marked contrast to the city of South Perth, which also came up with an idea for more high-rise, but then there was a, a backlash by the residents, um, there was a change of control at the council, um, and the result is that we've spent you know, several years where developers have been in the courts, in the State Administrative Tribunal, in front of the DAPs, all trying to get approvals for their projects. Yeah. Um, very little have, got, have gone through, so it's been extraordinarily frustrating for people in the industry, and I imagine for the local resident and the local council. Yeah. So 
you know, I think what City of Melville's done around Canning Bridge is a, a much better guide as to how, how to do these things. Um, he's also spoken to Gary Dempsey, another apartment developer in Perth. Um, Gary's done uh, quite a few projects. Uh, the Taskers one in North Fremantle is about to kick off the fourth stage of that. Um, and he remarked that, you know, it's taken a long time to get sufficient pre-sales before pressing the button on the, the final stage yeah. of that project. Yeah, I bet. Um, tough old market. Um, but finally, he's got to that point. Um, but like any good developer, he's got a pipeline ahead. He's teaming up with Ralph Sarich at Scarborough. Uh, there's some land that they develop and they've got, uh, they're planning to develop there more apartments. So once again, the Metropolitan Redevelopment Authority has control over a big chunk of land up there at Scarborough and they're keen to facilitate development yeah, got it. Um, in what I think is a sensible way down by the coast. Um, there'll be sort of a, a cluster of apartment projects down by the beach. Um, all makes good sense. Um, and then the other one that Gary's got in the works He's developing some apartments on the oceanfront at Cottesloe, of all places. Okay. Now, we all know there's been a very long-running debate about um, oceanfront development there. Residents have uh, vigorously opposed anything remotely high-rise. Um, in that case, uh, Gary's just um, accepted the current rules. It's going to be a, a five-level project, which sits within the, um, the approved sort of standards. Um, but, you know, any of us that go down to Cottesloe, we're sort of thinking we, we want to see something new and fresh. Hasn't been anything new or fresh down there for a long time. Well, it's um, going to be a fair bit of change down there, Mark, with tree forests, you know, changing Indiana and everything. So uh, we won't recognise the place in a couple of years. Well, he's certainly planning to. Yeah. Once again, that's yet to get through the planning approvals. Yeah, good trip. You know, good yeah. he's out there doing public consultation in a, what I think is a very constructive way, um, and hopefully, it, it, he can do something better down there. Yeah, but let's wait and see. No, totally. Uh, Mark, our special report this week is on tourism. I gather that really much the same challenges remain. Yeah. So look, um, we've had a chat to the minister, Paul Papalia. Um, he's had a, you know, a big focus in this area. Uh, the state government has stepped up um, their investment in tourism marketing um, and you know, getting some encouraging results. Um, interstate tourism has been picking up, but um, international tourism, WA, continues to underperform. Um, you know, what's been happening on the East Coast has been some strong growth and we just haven't been seeing it here. Yeah. Um, the, the feedback from the industry is that we just, we just need to do more and it's partly on the marketing side but it's also about, you know, and sorry, and that takes advantage of a lot of the investment in infrastructure that happened under the Barnett government. So, you know, the new stadium and Elizabeth Quay and Northbridge Link and so on. But the other part of it, this is recurring theme, is that what do people do when they get here? You know, where's the fun? What are the attractions? Mm. And that ties into a lot of issues around red tape and so on. Um, you know, I saw a picture the other day of seaplanes on the Swan River. Yeah. One of those things that people talk about a lot, um, but getting approvals for something like that, um, zip lines, all sorts of ideas get thrown around. Um, there's work on some of them, yeah. um, but you know the industry is really keen to see um, a lot more uh, regulatory support from government, so that private investment can go into new attractions for WA. 
Yeah, no, I agree. And it's, uh, yeah, yeah, it's really is a perennial issue. Perennial. Uh, now, Mark, finally, the Great for the State uh, next edition is out next week as well. What's the focus there? Look, this is our monthly um, series uh, where we look at sort of different aspects of Western Australia. Um, now, the theme for this one is around natural resources, but we've taken a bit of a, a broad approach. Obviously, there's you know, the mining and, and petroleum wealth in Western Australia. Uh, but Matt McKenzie's looked at some of the people who've actually made a difference there and allowed that development to take place. Um, he's also talked about the importance of technology and the way, in fact, off the back of mining, um, a lot of sort of engineering and technology expertise has developed in Western Australia, and that's now exported around the world out of Perth. But also looking broader about you know, the concept of resources in mean, our coastline, mm. um, that ties into the tourism industry as well. Um, farming, he's looked at some of the interesting developments happening in that front, uh, from you know, wine making to truffles. Um, so it's just a, it's a really fascinating sort of broad take on um, what we have in Western Australia um, beyond mining and resources and, and some of the good things that we're doing to take advantage of that. Uh, Brent, well, I look forward to reading that in uh, detail. Thanks, Mark. Uh, the Business News mobile app provides you with a quick and easy access to news and the BNIQ search engine. All you need is Business News website login or get started via your LinkedIn or Google account if it has the same email address registered to your Business News account. The app gives you the basics of our website, the latest news and a quick search function for articles, people and companies. It will also notify you when the daily news alert has been sent. Download in the app store of your device. Give it a go. Thanks for listening to Mark My Words with Mark Pownell and Mark Beyer from Business News. For more information, please go to businessnews.com.au forward slash podcasts And to receive these regularly, search for Business News WA in iTunes or SoundCloud.